Hillary emailed me, well done, Hillary. She emailed me this week and said, um, are you sure you have that passage right? Because it's just one verse. Uh, and then she said, coming in, can I say this? Am I allowed to say this? She said, I almost didn't get out of bed to come in and read this today. Uh, I'm really thankful that you did. Thank you, Hillary. Stages of grief. Who here has heard of stages of grief? Yeah, a few of us. Some of us have occupational experience with this because we work with folks either in a healthcare setting or a care setting. Others of us know about the stages of grief because we have firsthand experience being with somebody who is transitioning out of life, for example, who's dying. Others of us will have lost things in our lives. Jobs, family separation, all of these things can be catalysts for grief. Denial. Anger. Bargaining. Depression. Acceptance. Now, it's not a hard and fast formula, as you may know. Some people experience these things in groups. Sometimes there are long intervals that pass before we experience one stage and then another. My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. I believe, and this is difficult sometimes to acknowledge, but I believe that Jesus in his humanity volunteered to enter into grief. As God and being equal to God, He comes alongside human beings during His time on earth, and He digs into the experience of being human. And at any point, He can bow out. At any point, He could have said, I'm equal to God. I can reject this experience. I can call on angels and archangels to save me. And yet he doesn't do that. And so we see him wrestle in this passage. Father, I can almost hear him saying, Father, do the thing deep down that I really need. Spare me. I know that pain and death and suffering is never your plan, Father. But I will do this in spite of the cost. Denial, bargaining. Then there's anger. 
He turns to his disciples. He finds them sleeping and he says, couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? And he says to them again, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come. The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Anger. As he realized that the hope that he put in his friends was too much for them. Anger at the realization of his own mortality. Anger may be that no one forced him to the cross, that it was his own will. I don't know. Depression. Jesus says to his disciples, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. It is that sick feeling, that bottomless pit of hopelessness that opens up inside you and sometimes it threatens to to swallow everything that you know. It, It can cast a shadow over your past and your present and your history. It can consume you in the sense that you begin to think that you're insignificant. Just another grain of sand in the vast desert of existence. That is the threat of depression. And then, regardless of whatever steps have come, and in what order, there is the last and final and I think the most powerful acceptance. And we see this in a powerful way in Jesus. Going at once to Jesus, Judas says, greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. And the man steps forward, seizes Jesus, and arrested him. And with that, one of Jesus' companion reaches for his sword, draws it, and strikes the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my Father? But how then would the Scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? There is a calm There is a sense of calm in acceptance. After the tears, after the sobbing, after being on the floor, and some of you like me, you've been there, you know what it's like. After all of that, to be wept dry with grief. After all of that, there is a sense of great clarity and oftentimes a great sense of resolve. There is a quiet strength, a kind of strength tested like steel that isn't loud, that isn't flashy, but it's filled with resolve. 
Acceptance speaks with a deep voice. Stronger than steel. Lasting and true. It's the voice that when you find it and you speak it, people will lean in to hear it. And from that place, I believe the Holy Spirit speaks. I believe that from that place, earth-shattering truths emerge. Peter, you will disown me three times. But I love you. I will go ahead of you to Galilee following my death and resurrection, following the horrible pain and suffering, following the despair of loss, following the fear of the morning after when nobody will know quite what's going to happen. And Jesus says, I'll meet you there on the other side of all of this because I love you. Acceptance. We will never go back to whatever reality we knew that was before COVID. Acceptance. Church will never be the same. It may never be quite as we remembered. For some, the fear and anxiety may never go away completely. For others, there may be frustrations. Acceptance. But in a good way, acceptance is a double-edged blade. It comes with a blessing, with acknowledging those truths, those realities. We position ourselves to press in and to hear that deep voice of quiet strength after the mourning is done that looks at the circumstances and says, yes, in many ways I see defeat in my own life in the sense that all of my preconceived notions have been laid bare to be examined. Acceptance is a double-edged blade. On the one side is the imperative to come to grips with loss. And that can be loss in our own lives. The loss of things and people and a history valuable to each of us. And that can be loss in the life of the church where we yearn for those things and for that time and place maybe that was before all of this. But the Spirit of Jesus is calling us beyond death, beyond loss, beyond humiliation, beyond trial and crucifixion, 
It is this place that is the grand, undiscovered country, the very kingdom of heaven, the very mountaintop of Galilee that Jesus calls us to. He says, I will, I will, I will meet you there in the flesh. I will be there. Acceptance is the gospel. My grandmother Lucille grew up in the hinterlands of Nebraska sometime before the Great Depression when lots of people were poor, but not everybody knew it. (laughs) She was raised in a one-bedroom sod house. It was a house that was built into the side of the earth. And I remember I have a picture, if I wish I had it, it's lost somewhere. I wish I had this picture of her standing in front of the house and there was a cow grazing on top of the house as there was grass and soil right over the top. And every summer, her father would run horses up to Canada where they would graze and then he'd come back down six months later and sell those horses and they scraped together enough money to build a dairy farm. And one day she saw her father come home sick with fever. And he parked his horse and buggy out front and he began walking up to the steps of the house and collapsed. He died right there. And they put Lucille in this shed when it came time for the funeral. They put her in this shed and they didn't want her to see her father carried out of the house. But she managed to climb up to the workbench and peek out the window, and she saw all of it. She grew up with two younger brothers. Her mother moved them to rural Florida, where she learned how to shoot to repel snake attacks, panther attacks, and attacks by Native Americans. She lived through the Great Depression, which is why when I knew her, she would never even look at a banana, because it was the only thing that they ate, apparently, in that household. But she managed to get a scholarship to the local university, and so she went. And that summer, she was in a terrible car accident. I don't know if you remember those cars that had rumble seats in the back. It was a kind of external seat and, and, and near the boot and you would, you would roll it open and it was behind the cab which was covered and you sit and essentially it was an open top and the car flipped and she was pinned and her back was broken and how many times did she tell the story of that nurse who was driving the car that she got out and she lifted that car four tons lifted that car and pulled Lucille out to safety. Broke her thumb in the process. Lucille grew up. She rehabbed that back, learned to walk again. She went to university. She became president of a bank. She earned her private pilot's license. She watched both of her brothers die an early death 
Paul drank himself to death and Bud worked himself to death. She met a handsome young man in the U.S. Air Force. His name was Bob. And they married. And Bob had a time of it. He suffered from lifelong chronic depression, which during those years you could not talk about. And she supported him through that, kept that family secret for years and years and years and years. And Bob retired as a lieutenant colonel. He made it. And things got even harder. As Bob's depressions became more protracted and carried on for longer periods of time. And they got involved in their local church and they joined a home group. And for a generation that found it very difficult to talk about private things, they found a way to talk about the difficult things that were happening in their life. And they talked about the conversation that they had with their neighbor, a close friend who also suffered with depression, who was thinking about suicide. And Bob was the man who said, there's so much to live for. He said, I think about it all the time, but I believe in a God who created us for a reason. In the beauty of life, don't do that. Don't go down that road. Call me. Call me anytime. And that's the story that they shared in their church, in their home group, in their own way. You see, acceptance is not ignoring the hard realities of this life. It's about saying, this is who I am. And as a church, you know, this is the thing that's been such a blessing to see, is for us to be honest about who we are, our challenges, our victories. But saying, you know, we're, we're not going to, we're not just going to put these things to the side. These are the things that make us who we are. And as a church, our history is what makes us who we are. And Jesus says to us, I have a journey of transformation prepared for you in your life. It is a beautiful process of transformation. Here's what happens. You take your failures, your shame, the things that you've done wrong, and you put them down at the foot of this cross. And Jesus says, when you've done that, it's not like I hide them away. It's not like I carry them off and sweep them under some rug or I ignore them. Jesus says, I take those, I take those things as your offering. And then I turn around to the world and I show them what I can do with all of that. How I can take that reality and turn it over and transform your biggest loss into the kingdom's biggest gain. How I can take your story and transform it from one of heartbreak and loss and suffering into victory. Because Jesus wants you to be proud 
He wants you to stand up tall in and for your life, for who you are and what you believe, not as some kind of whitewashing over the bad stuff, but as a God's honest, truthful account of who we are. Now in Lucille's life, there's stuff that can't be glossed over. You know, the the silence and the secrets that were kept in that family had an effect. It, It was hard for people to carry. It was hard for my mother to carry those secrets. And you know, we gotta be honest about those things. Jesus wants to take this journey with you and with me in a journey of self-transformation, but also of church transformation. This is our shared story of how we grow together, how we're honest together. It is the journey to the mountaintop. It is the journey to Galilee. Let's mark this occasion as a point in our history when we say, let's look to the future, not forgetting the past, but resting on the promise of God's transformation in our lives. Amen.